the Son, and the Holy Ghost. My apologies to you for this different arrangement, but I can't remember the steps yet, so rather than risk falling flat on my face and destroying the whole service, it's best if I preach the sermon from up here. I know you'll understand. You'll have to. Consider so. <laughs> penance, okay, just another part of the journey back to God. We have to put up with feeble priests, just the way it is. Father Zacharias, contemporary Orthodox monk, in his recent books, Alive from the Dead, says this, correct faith creates the right relationship with the Lord. It gradually leads to repentance, illumining and strengthening this relationship until man's heart unites with the, Holy Spirit, with the Spirit of God. This is Trinity Sunday, as you've already figured out. Uh, and it's the, really a pivotal feast day in the church's calendar, uh, or at least in the Western calendar. <coughs> and it's pivotal in that it culminates in what I call the festal calendar, that is the Feast of Our Lord, which we have celebrated since, since December. We looked at the nativity, the manifestation of God incarnate in, in the birth of Christ. We saw the divinity which is the God manifesting himself to the Gentiles and to in the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, we saw the presentation of the Lord in the temple. We celebrated the glorious entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in Palm Sunday. We, we celebrated the giving of the first mass on Monday Thursday. We celebrated the Passion of Christ on Good Friday, the Pascha, the Ascension, Pentecost. You get the picture? We've seen what God has done in the Incarnation. And it culminates in this day, the Trinity. All of that was intended to show us that God is revealing himself to us in this. But that's not the end of it. Then we come to the other side of the cycle, the other part of the pivot, if you will, where we have all these Sundays, these routine Sundays going all the way till Advent, which look at what we do in response to God, in response to that story of the festival calendar. Uh, and so in the Roman Catholic Church, this is often called ordinary time. It's hardly ordinary, let me tell you, uh, as you, as you know from your own discipleship. Uh, I like to call it the ferial cycle because it's, it focuses on what daily living is all about, daily response to the Trinity. It is what, and what we'll be looking at in the Sundays that follow this day uh, will, will be this, what, what we are to do in response to the revelation of the Trinity. So what we are to do, everything is response. Always response to the revelation of God in the, in the Holy Trinity. There's no, it's not just what are we to do, how are we to be religious, how are we to be nice people, and all that kind of, that's nonsense. If it doesn't come out of an encounter with God, then there's no point to it. But that's the point for us. And so the Trinity is pivotal. Uh, we need to understand it correctly, and I, I know you do, but what I've found through the years is we, we we keep growing into this, so it's never enough. There's always more, as we'll see, as we'll come to understand. God is not something we grasp, that we sort of master it, and oh yeah, I've been there, done that, know that. No, not like that at all. The doctrine of the Trinity is meant to reveal something about God. It's not something we made up some centuries ago and force everybody to believe. We have to believe it if we come here. We should believe it because it's life-giving. But it's meant to reveal something about him. And this is what those who have gone before us have encountered. So it's, it's not just 
my word to you or his word to you. It's what those who've gone before us have encountered. All the great saints of history have encountered this God who is Trinity and believe it. So we're, it's not like, you know, I can choose to believe it or not choose to believe it. But if I challenge it, it's my word against the word of all those people who have gone before who believed it. Now you tell me, what are the odds that I would know better than they? So, but that's our logic, you see. Each of us is, well, you know, I don't buy that, I don't understand it, so therefore I don't buy it. Well, come on. We believe, but we, if science says this is true and that's true, we say, oh yeah, it must be. If the media says this is so and that is so, oh yeah, it must be. And yet the church says God is Trinity and this is what's been revealed to us. Oh, come now, that's illogical. Well, is it? So this is what has been revealed to us by those who have gone before us. This is their experience. And it's easily misunderstood because of our intellectual pride. For example, many people think that Trinity means that God is three. And so many people believe that Christians believe in three gods. Quran suggests in emphasizing the unity of God that the belief in three means three different persons, three different, three different gods, not persons. That leads to an old heresy called tritheism. I don't need to even interpret it for you to get the figure. Three gods. It's not what we believe. Or that God is only one with three appearances. That is, there's one God who appears sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Holy Spirit. This is called modalism, also condemned in the early church as not being accurate of what the church said happened and was revealed to them. And some contemporaries use only the language of three in one. As long as we have three in one in our formula, somehow we've got it. No matter what we say or what we believe, as long as there are three in one. One of the modern ways of, of changing it from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to go with Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. Well, the problem with that is that those are attributes of God, not persons. That's not the doctrine of the Trinity. You don't even need to have the Trinity to have those characteristics, to say those words that God is Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. So it can be misunderstood, and frequently is. And unfortunately, those of us who claim to believe it are the ones who often misunderstand the most. But what God has revealed to us is that this is true. This is who He is. And this, if we want to know Him, is where we begin. Now note something. The very Bible, the very beginning of the Bible tells us this. In Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created. In the Hebrew text, and I'm not going to go into a long discussion of Hebrew and Greek and all of that stuff, so breathe easily. In the Hebrew text, it says the word for God is in the plural form. But the verb is the masculine singular third person it might be, it might be translated, in the beginning, God's, He created. So from the very first sentence of the Bible, it warns us about the whole notion of multiplicity in unity. And God is revealing Himself in His creation. 
And what he lets us know is right from the beginning, I am multiplicity in unity. Now, how do we grasp that? Oh, no, I can't be right. So the Bible's wrong from the beginning, right? <laughs> you know, isn't it funny how it's always everything out there is wrong instead of looking at maybe my perception is wrong. Maybe it's true and I'm wrong. Oh, God forbid that I should admit such a thing. So we begin with something which is, to our logic, purely irrational. If we want to know God, we begin with the irrational, which is actually the most rational. But we're fallen human beings, and we don't, we don't want to admit that, pridefully. So what the Bible tells us is this. God is multiplicity and unity. How do we understand that? Well, the, the saints who have gone before us have defined it as this. God is his essence, and he is his energies. His essence, the essence of who and what constitutes deity. And I'm just using a couple of principles here just to get the point across. He is one, obviously. That is, he's not composite. You and I are composite. We are soul and body, each of us. And when the soul separates from the body, the body dies. And we all know from losing loved ones what that's all about. <clears throat> so we understand what it means to be composite. God is not composite. Even if we say he's three, he is not composite. He is one. He is, as philosophers say, simple. We misunderstand that word too, unless we understand what it means not to be composite. He is one, always one. He is omnipresent. In being one, he is everywhere. There is nowhere where he is not. This is one of the tragedies of hell, is that everybody will be in the presence of God, but those who are suffering will be the ones who there in the presence of God cannot partake of him or participate in his being. That is hell to see it and know what we've given up and not be able to change the course of our direction of where we're going. That is hell. Right in the presence of God. It's not what we expect, is it? He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There's nothing that he cannot do. God can do all things. Now, if we ask him to do something, and he may not because we are asking according to our sins and our passions, or it may be that he answers yes in, in terms of, but in his time, eternity, not our time. So he's all powerful. He can do it. He is timeless. He's outside of time. You know, we think God's up there, the, the guy with the long white beard and the long white hair, and he's sitting, you know, maybe today I'll do something different. He's outside of time. He sees all of time from eternity. We don't see that way. And then having said these things, that he is, he is not composite, he's one, he's omnipresent, he's ever-present, he's all-powerful, he's timeless, he is transcendent. <coughs> that is, whatever we say about him, he transcends it. He's greater than that. And he will always be greater than that. Does that mean our words mean nothing? No. Our words are accurate. But they also, also include the concept of transcendence. God transcends everything we can say about Him. This is oneness. This is essence. It's called usia in Greek or in the Latin. The translations into English, substance. That is one. Wow. That's what we're dealing with. Sort of. Because He's also His essence. That is, 
his energies, his, his essence are his energies. He's going out of himself. So what do we say? The Father is creator. Do you see the activity going out? The Son is, is begotten. The Spirit is proceeding from. We see activity in God. Yet God is everywhere. So it can't be that kind of activity like I go from here to here. I wasn't there just a minute ago and I wasn't here when I stepped back. God is not like that. He's everywhere. So that kind of activity has got to be different. His energies, He's going out of Himself, revealing Himself. It is His very nature to reveal Himself. So if we don't understand, it's because of a fault in us. And so He does reveal Himself to us. And we seek that revelation and that's what the Trinity is. The, something to add here, the energies of God are God. There are those who used to say that they were uh, emanations. They were called Gnostics in the first century. Some of the New Testament writers, particularly St. John's epistles, wrote against Gnosticism. They are God. So they're not something less and they're not something created. They are God. And that's why we use the words, they are substantive, they are hypostases, they are persons. And in persons, it's personal. So not only is it God, but He's making Himself known to us. He's being intimate, personal with us. We can only know God if we know what He reveals to us. And that is the Trinity. And that's why this feast is so important in our calendar. It's pivotal. Everything comes here. It's almost like a starting point for us. That's why we can say at the end of the Easter Rite Liturgy, we have seen the true light. It's almost a profession of faith. And in the Western light liturgy, we have beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Revelation is by this experience and encounter and experience of God as He reveals Himself. We confirm this again in the Nicene Creed. It's what one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three sections, including one on the Incarnation, we use the Gloria Patri how many times in, the, in our prayers, ending psalms, and in hymns, and canticles? The conclusions to the collects are Trinitarian. Why? Because they're trying to keep us focused on this important aspect of God's self-revelation. So what do we do with all of this? Well, it's real simple, and you know this, and yet I mean, you might say, duh. Let's reiterate it. That's what this does. Notice we reiterate everything in the calendar repeatedly, except lest we forget. So we start, number one, we accept it as true when we believe it, even if it's feebly. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We accept as true the logically impossible. St. Augustine said, we don't understand in order to believe, we believe in order to understand. What a difference that profound statement makes. And then we see it, number two, this belief is pivotal for us. The foundation of everything we understand. Where it's going, what it's telling us, what's happening to us. And thirdly, not only do we accept that, but we strive to encounter it. Because that's exactly what God wants for us. To strive to encounter it. Again, I go back to what Father Zacharias said. This is such a profound statement. Correct faith creates the right relationship with the Lord. It gradually leads to repentance, illumining and strengthening this relationship until man's heart unites with the Spirit of God. 
that is exactly what this whole series of things we do and believe is about. In the name of the Father, and of the Son,